As I was, you know, prayerfully contemplating what I should share with you, um, I felt that the Lord placed it in my heart to actually share the book of Ecclesiastes from the perspective of Jesus. And so that's the reason why um, we have got the focus of the sermon today around Jesus in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, some of the things that I have discovered, and I'm sure others also, about the book of Ecclesiastes is this, that it's a book that transcends religion and philosophy. And why I say that? Yesterday, I was um, at a social gathering, and I happened to be seated in the company of a number of Muslims. I knew them. Um, and so, being somebody who has my sister over there will tell you, if you want to find out more about me, I can be very provocative. I can be very provoking. Mike, I'm sure you're <laughs> very true. I don't know about who knows me. I can be very provocative. So I, I thought, okay, you know what? Um, you know what I'm going to be sharing tomorrow at church? Because I knew I'm a believer, a Christian. And I said, well, I'm going to share something tomorrow in church which you as Muslims, I think, could in some way resonate with. Uh, what is that? What is that? I said, well, it's um, from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And they weren't familiar with the book. So I said, well, what is the book of the book Ecclesiastes about? Well, I said to them, it's really saying, right, the ultimate thing that all of life is futile. And if you're pursuing knowledge, if you're pursuing, wis if you're pursuing wisdom, if you're pursuing material goals, whatever they are, it will all end in futility. And that, in essence, is what it... And, and I thought, hmm, that sounds very interesting. I said, yeah, and, and the one who perhaps was the most scholarly of them all said, yes, I can see where you're going and see what you're saying. Yes, that certainly is something that the whole of humanity needs to actually be reminded about. So, Ecclesiastes, it transcends all, I would say, religion, philosophy, ideas, politics, because it deals with the very essence, the main issues in life. It's probably the most somber book in the Bible, if you just read the book in its own right. If you, take, if you do not actually read it in light of the gospel and you just read Ecclesiastes and just focus on it alone, it can be the most somber book in the Bible. It can be the most disconcerting book in the Bible if you just look at Ecclesiastes alone. It can just shatter everything that you hold, right? That is a value in this life. But what I have aimed to actually propose today is if you read the book of Ecclesiastes with Jesus at the core, it takes on a different meaning. It takes on a different focus. And I will say, you cannot fully grasp Ecclesiastes as any other book in the Bible unless it's grounded in Jesus. Every book in the Bible, in one way or the other, is an expression of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ecclesiastes is no different. So without Jesus, Ecclesiastes is just a book there to just more or less say, well, human life is totally meaningless and empty. So I'm just going to go through all the chapters. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through in detail. Um, you know, my sister again will tell you I can be a long meter and I could keep you here until midnight, but I don't intend to do so. Just going to go through um, the 12 chapters, but gleaning from it areas that actually shows where Jesus is so vital to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us first of all start with Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Now, we know that the book opens with the author, the author giving a new 
and few brief clues, given a few brief, brief clues to his identity. What is remarkable about this is how closely these clues describe Jesus. For instance, the words, son of David, were a title that Jesus often answered to. After all, he was a descendant from the line of David. And he oftentimes was referred, and that was quite common within Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish custom, to refer somebody to, to a person of high figurehead. So it's like, for instance, um, Bertram says to me, Mr. Carnegie, and a number of you do. But as soon as you say Mr. Carnegie, I'm sure my sister again would probably think, oh, Mr. Carnegie, my, our dad, straight away. And quite often a lot of people who'd, who knew in the neighborhood, etc., um, you say, oh yeah, you are um, Mr. Carnegie's son. You're a Carnegie boy, as they would say in Jamaican way. So for Jesus, he's coming from the line of David. It was quite customary for them to say the son of David, even though David had passed on centuries before. So the author here in Ecclesiastes also is referred to as the son of David. And the Messianic prophecies they also state that Christ would be the son of David. So we knew from prophecies even well before Jesus came to this earth that it says that the son of David would come. The author also calls himself king in Jerusalem. And as we know, Jesus, the eternal king, he was lifted up and exalted in Jerusalem. And currently he reigns in heaven. But eventually, Jerusalem will be where his throne will lie. He will come and take up his throne in Jerusalem. So again, we see that that opening chapter, that I refers to Jesus being the king in Jerusalem. Again, it's a shadow of Christ. In verse 2, the author gives a thesis that will be supported throughout the entire book. And it says, everything is futile. Everything, absolutely everything. He goes on to the chapter to speak of the deeds of man and even the accumulation of knowledge. It, you know, doesn't leave anything out. Every aspect of human experience, everything of human endeavor is covered in the book. And when you have got a situation which is futile, right, as human beings, quite often times, it breeds a sense of hopelessness, helplessness. And so, in actually confronting futility, the only way in which it can be addressed is through Jesus Christ. So the only thing worthy of recognition in the book is Jesus himself. And next to him, everything. So every aspect of human experience, every aspect of human aspiration, everything of human worth pale into insignificance compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason being, it's only Jesus Christ that is eternal. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is transient. And we know that. I mean, recently, I um, knew of three elderly friends who passed away. And all three in their own respective ways had from a human level achieved and made huge contributions. One was a very outstanding community activist who had a funeral at Savat Cathedral. Christian man, a Christian advocate, political activist, died at 93. But yet, 
there it was, his time had come. Left a great legacy, left a great Christian witness. But his time has come. So Sam King is gone off to glory. There will be no more of Sam King. Another friend, all the way from the west of England in Gloucester. Not a believer, but amassed a fortune. But yet, in the latter part of his life, he was afflicted by cancer. And suddenly, in spite of having, you know, well over seven figures account in the bank, in seeing him in, a, in his final days, all his money and all his kind of business accomplishment meant nothing to him. The only thing that his entire mind was focused around was confronting, was coming to terms with death. And in trying to even share the gospel, that was very difficult. And I'll tell you the reason why. Not that he necessarily was overtly opposed to the gospel. But if people are waiting for, on their deathbed, are waiting until the last stages in life, before considering salvation, I think that they could be seriously deceiving themselves, deluding themselves. Because this is just one example, that when you're at that stage, when your body is crippled with pain, your mind is tortured, as I found with this friend, by his impending death and the way the cancer ravages his body. Yeah? Very, very intelligent man, right? During his youth and in his you know, days when he was healthy. But at this moment, none of that could assist him. Not all the money he had could assist him anymore. His intellect couldn't be of any value and assistance to him. All that he was focused around was, right, the process of dying. And I said, you know what? That is to remind us, right, that when we come, right, to that final hurdle, with all the plans, with all the sort of, um, you know, preparation we might think and make and says, right, we're going to do this at that moment, so forth, right? That moment with that friend shows me clearly, says, no, 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 right? Death in itself is so overwhelming and the, dying, the process of dying is so consuming. And much the saddest of my heart, I felt that that friend died outside of Christ. So yes, his family may well have benefited from the legacy he left behind. But what eternity does he face? And when you look back in his life, in the light of eternal things, what he has actually achieved, right? It goes back to what it says, it's futile. But yet there's a third person, a lady, who passed away. And I remember that lady, went to church with that lady. And I'm telling you, right? Um, very petite, you know, in her days, a very good-looking lady and so forth, but very, very formidable in the Lord. And if you needed prayer and the Lord moved her heart to pray, you could live on the 10th floor, right? Off one of the most derelict, run-down estate, 
And if she's the only one who has to go there and pray, she will go. She never was a follower of people. She was a leader of people. She was so tenacious. And I saw her in the last few weeks before she passed away. And there I was going and said, oh, Sister Foster, I'm just going to come. I treat her as a mother. I said, before I could even say, oh, should I, Sister Foster, let me pray for you. Because you know what? I feel in the spirit that the Lord says, right, I need to pray for you. So I came to pray for her. She ended up praying for me. Right? And during her last moments and so forth, she says, I'm not afraid of death. The one thing that bothers me is the process of dying because she said it is so it's a painful process. So she says, I'm just asking the Lord to let this process of dying dissipate quickly and, he, and call me home. So she went, I believe, into the kingdom of God with a grand welcome. And I've never been to the funeral where I saw so many people so happy and thankful because, right, so many people were there whose lives she had touched spiritually, socially, emotionally, and so on. Right? So we see from the book of Ecclesiastes, again, repeat, Jesus is the ultimate answer in, to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, this might be the most practical chapter in the Bible for today's world. In the chapter, the author speaks of how he has amassed the greatest of wealth for himself. He has worked hard. He has earned many things. He has designed and indulged in the greatest of luxuries. Does that sound familiar? We see it on the television, we see it around, we see it in the media. You know, we see examples daily because we live in the fourth wealthiest country in the world. Again, he's also the wiser than any previous ruler, and yet he still was not satisfied with life. So he had wealth, he had luxury, he had all that this life could offer, including great wisdom, but yet he was not satisfied. And so he realized that no matter what a person does or has in life, life ends. He understands that people only live a short time. Right? So the first person in 93, the second person, late 80s, the last individual, Sister Foster, right? mid 80s. But each one of them in some ways, you know, it just doesn't start so long ago. When I remember them were young and, you know, upright and, you know, very healthy and strong. But now, it seems, I says quickly. And as one of the things I notice, you know, I'm, I'll be, you know, God willing, it'll be 16 January. But one of the things I notice is, as you get older, life seems to somehow <laughs> travel. Our time seems to travel much faster, right? Whereas when I was a little, you know, toddler, Christmas seems to be a long time coming. Now, before you blink, they've already started to advertise and watch for Christmas. And Christmas seems, wow, it's, it's, goodness me, is it December? And like my sister again, she's born two days before Christmas. Oh, no, don't tell me I have to start planning to get her Christmas presents and a Christmas gift already. So, you know, life seems to actually move more quickly as you get older, as you get on, you get more, you know, as, as, as age and as time begin to, um, you know, move on. And so life is short, 
as we look at it from the perspective of Ecclesiastes. The author, again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, understands that not only is life short, but when we die, lose everything in this world. Not even wisdom, not even knowledge, right, can act as a sure, an assurance against anything. It's not an insurance policy. It does not guarantee anything. Everyone eventually in this life comes to an end. Death awaits everyone. As Pastor Robert reminds us, 10 out of 10, 1 out of 1, 100 out of 100. Every day, 300,000 people passed out of this existence. So death comes to all of us. And as one brother used to say to me, so we're just standing in a line, and it's when your turn in the line comes. <laughs> That's, yeah your day will arrive. And something my grandfather used to say, you know, live every day like it's your last because one day it's going to be true. Right? So, yes. <laughs> you know, so yes, death comes to everyone. And this is what Ecclesiastes chapter 2 reminds us. So we cannot take anything with us when we die. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So the pursuit of earthly desire is in the end worthless. All that we pursue in this world is totally worthless in the light of death, in the light of the brevity of life. But yet Jesus is the only worthy thing worth chasing after. Jesus is the only one who transcends death. Only what we do for Jesus will last. And this is what we need to understand in light of what Ecclesiastes 2 is saying about death and its finality. That is only Jesus alone that transcends death. So Ecclesiastes 2, again, is about Jesus. Ecclesiastes 3. It is a very difficult chapter. If you actually read through it, it's a very difficult chapter to fully comprehend. In some places, it, it is very gloomy. And it's seemingly saying that there is really no point to life. It's almost as you might as well give up, abandon life. And, you know, if um, you know anything about people who suffer from mental disorder, right, don't look at it as if it's them and it's us who are healthy, an healthy man, or we are sane and they're insane, right? The unfortunate thing is that we are all on a polarity. We're all on a spectrum, right? We all have, in a sense, have those moments of insanity. We all have that moment of insanity. You know, madness, if you could say that. However, the difference is, there seems to have taken on a much more permanent fixture. And if you know anything about a condition called depression, what is depression? Depression is where one's desires, one's aspirations, one's hope is far removed from one's capacity, capacity to actually fulfill them. So when someone is quite often in a state of depression, it's because what they would hope for is far from removed from what they are capable of achieving. And sometimes you perhaps wonder, why is it that sometimes you've heard of um, celebrities going through, right, these dark souls of the night, they seem to be going through this depression. It's because if you know anything about the celebrity culture, 
when you're fame, when things are going well, it triggers off certain hormones that give you a sense of elation. Just as drugs do. Just as many, you know, narcotic drugs does. But it doesn't last for long. Eventually, what starts to happen, right? It starts to eventually subside. It starts to, you could say, climb down. And so when they're not in the spotlight, suddenly, wow, there's something missing. And that's where sometimes depression sits in. So what they really felt that they want, what they desire, is not happening. And they can't just simply say, right, okay, you know what? I'm going to jump in front of the camera. I'm going to actually go to this particular event. I'm going to go. So it's not that simple and easy. Because, you know, the whole system is managed by a set of people who look at their own business interests over and above the individual's interests. So you take, for instance, someone like Michael Jackson. Why was it Michael Jackson at, um, at middle age, in his 50s, still trying to be Peter Pan, or still trying to be, trying to perform as he was when he was in his 20s. I felt it's not simply that Michael Jackson necessarily needed more money, but Michael Jackson needed that experience of euphoria once again. He just could not somehow come to terms with being out of the spotlight. So he needed to be back in the spotlight for his own emotional cravings. And so it is with many people, many of us, many people you see who are depressed, many people who have got some sort of mental condition or the other. Right? Their needs and their wants, there's a huge gap between them. Now, in chapter 3, we again are reminded that one cannot take anything. You cannot take your treasures. You cannot take material interests with you. You cannot take your material possessions. And the author is continually reminding us that material possessions only serve a temporary value. It's only for temporary value. It doesn't actually serve any eternal. It doesn't serve any spiritual value. Yet somehow we seem to be one in this, especially in the Western world. Yeah? We seem to be obsessed with our material interests and our material possessions. In spite of being reminded by the book of Ecclesiastes and even by some of the other spiritual ideas that materialism cannot satisfy the human condition. Because in essence, we are what? Spiritual beings. We're not in essence material. We're not in essence here to live only by our appetites and our desires. We're in essence spiritual beings. God created us principally as spiritual beings because God is spirit. And he created us that we would enjoy him, we'd worship him, we'd have a relationship with him. But because of sin, that relationship has been destroyed. And so we need to fill that void, and that's the reason why we end up filling it with all this pursuit 
of earthly desires. But what the author is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is, right, that will all come to an end. And as I said earlier, right, a verse that is so often read at funeral, or a set of verses that's often read at funeral, we're all appointed to die. So often they read that. And what often sometimes troubles me is I'm saying, this person may not be a Christian, and why are they reading something that is so pertinent? to what happens if you have not come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why are you reading something in the Bible about a time to, you know, a time to die, right? It's not simply a case of, well, you know, um, this is my start and this is my end. Right? This is my start, but this is not my end because what comes beyond death is judgment. And quite oftentimes, unfortunately, I think people tend at what I would say when non-Christian funerals, read this chapter, but don't actually spend time reflecting on it. Right? It's not simply that you die and that's it. As some people would, you know, delude themselves. It's time, and you know, just ahead of judgment. So chapter three reminds us that life comes to an end. But when we die, right, we're moving on to face God's judgment. So the passage, in essence, is crying out for more. It's saying, what comes beyond death? Wow, death is so horrifying. Death is so paralyzing. Is that it? Yes, we, as again, the way our minds work, when we are confronted with distress and anxiety, we find ways to rationalize it. And so you find, again, because of sin, many choose to say, oh, no, no, that is the final thing. So, right, might as well just live, be happy, be merry, yeah? fulfill, maximize, optimize pleasure, because once you're dead, that's it. I think that that is, again, how our minds sets out this mechanism to deal with any sort of um, despair and any distress. It's almost like what you found with children who are in situations of great peril, of abuse, right? or in threatening situations. What you'll find, as um, psychologists have shown us, is that they will try and somehow switch off from whatever is causing the distress, whatever is causing the despair, whatever is really causing them you know, intense emotional pain, they would somehow try to deny it's happening to them as a way of trying to somehow emotionally and psychologically deal with it. And so does many of us, especially in the West. If, you, if you've been to some of um, what I would say, secular funerals, have you ever noticed how people go along to these funerals and it's almost like they want to get it over with very quickly, <laughs> right? <coughs> Whereas sometimes you come from an Eastern culture, you come from Africa, you come from the Caribbean, you come from Asia and so forth, right? Yeah. Uh, the funeral tends to be almost what I could say a rites of passage. It's right, it's okay, yes, it's time to celebrate this person's life or if they've been a believer, celebrate their lives, right? Or 
to come to terms with the fact that, yes, this is going to happen, but this is just, right, the next stage before moving into eternity, right? But yet what I found going to um, funerals where there seems to be this denial of anything spiritual, this denial of God, is, it's very clinical. So we know, right, okay, 11 o'clock the funeral start. By 11.30 if it's a cremation or if it's a burial, right, it needs to be over so that we can go back to our lives. And I, I said to myself, you know what? That is the same whole defense mechanism that is operating, right? We don't have the answer to death. So what we try to do is rationalize away the fear that comes about, the despair, the uncertainty that is associated with the death. So we try to keep it as clinical as we can. And if you want to see now where people sometimes go to the other extreme of trying to somehow, um, as I better want a better cosmeticized funeral, you go to America. And my word, right? I remembered, you know, okay, my sister now, we don't share the same mother, we say the same father. I went to the funeral of my mother and, yeah, my other set of siblings, you know, we went along to the um, funeral director and my word, it wasn't about, um, right, honoring the deceased and um, making sure mother was buried with honor and things went orderly. It was like going to a business meeting. Okay, we can give you this casket, and this casket is waterproof. And this casket is made out of, you know, first grade mahogany, this, you know, so on and so Me, and, um, you know, my sister's and brother, the eyes are lightening up and so forth. I said, okay, yeah, you have the bank account that you can do. I said, what does one need to worry about if it's, the, if it's first grade mahogany, if it's waterproof and so forth, right? Right? Once your body's in the earth, what happens? In time, right? Oh man, you're from that country who don't believe in spending money, right? This is America, and this is the way we do things in America. And boy, I'm saying, you know, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> that be, why it's got a bit con. It's spending far more money in making sure. Right, that the casket, right, right, was of the more kind of expensive class. It was almost like going into to buy a, a, a new car. And boy, do you buy a Merckx or do you buy a BMW or do you buy, right, a Vauxhall, right? You just need to get from A to B. You don't need to know which one. But it was like that. So they cosmeticized it. They were trying to make. And I said to myself, you know what? This is once again, people trying to somehow get away from. Right? The reality of death as is set out in the scripture. Trying in so many, trying in so many different ways to, as we say, prevaricate, try to somehow, right? Yeah? Make you not think about what matters most of all. That this person's that and where is their eternal destiny? Not just in those issues. Right? But Ecclesiastes 3 presents us with all these problems. Problems of diet. The problems of futility. The uncertainties of life. Right? Looking at whether or not our lives is worth more than what we find in the animal kingdom. For in verse 21 it says, 
who really knows if the human spirit ascends upward and the animal spirit descends into the earth, right? Very deep, profound questions. But we come again and says, who else has the answer to these human problems? Only Jesus alone has the answer to these problems. No other philosophy, no other schools can provide those answers to the questions asked of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Only Jesus alone. Ecclesiastes 4 is another chapter where the author speaks extensively about the love of earthly goods and treasures. He emphasizes the fact that no amount of earthly riches ever brings satisfaction or may buy eternal life. See, that again, you know, he's continually yeah, recounting the same account. You know, if you want to get something across to somebody, you continually recount it. Again, those of you who perhaps are educators, teachers, or even parents, or wherever, if you want somebody to learn and to understand something, you keep repeating it until, right, they comprehend and understand it. So again, he's going, it seems to be going back to the same thing. Ecclesiastes 4 yeah, is once again reminding us right, that riches cannot bring satisfaction or buy eternal life. It opens by begging the answer, begging the question to the, to this, to the, to the world problems. Start by asking all questions that the world has been asking since the dawn of creation. But yet, the only answer we can find is in Jesus. Only Jesus has salvation. Only Jesus can bring peace. If you remember times when he, right, encounters his disciples, he knew in their heart they were troubled. And what he says, my peace I leave with you. And I think... The words that was more frequently associated with Jesus more than any other were with what? Fear not. Fear not. I believe someone said there's over 360, there's 366 fear nots in the Bible. And I think most of them attributed to Jesus. Jesus knew our troubles. He knows. And Sister Foster, the lady I spoke about, she used to love singing. She said, Jesus knows all about our troubles. She always used to sing that, when even, you know, in her quiet Meditation, you hear us singing it. Jesus knows all about our troubles. Right? And here it is again. Jesus is the only answer to all our fears, all our doubts, all our anxieties. He's the only one who is able to find, to give us true satisfaction and peace. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it begs for Jesus. It cries out for Jesus as you read through that particular chapter. Right? Unless it leads to Christ, it can leave the person feeling dispirited. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 encourages readers to place their treasures not in earthly things, but in heavenly things. Verse 10 says, The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. Basically saying... If you're earning money just for the sake of trying to fulfill your satisfaction, trying to fulfill your purpose in life, right? the only person you're deluding is yourself. You'll never find satisfaction. Just name me two people who learned this lesson during their pursuit of wealth. Howard Hughes, who was once the wealthiest man in the world, 
I'm Paul Getty. I'm talking back when I was young, and these were the names that were banded about. Howard Hughes died as a recluse. We amass a fortune that they still can't actually quite give you the full amount. Paul Getty, very discontented. And someone asked him once, right, Mr. Getty, what would make you happy, he says, if I was able to earn another million? Right. So his own life, his whole life was focused on just acquiring wealth for the sake of acquiring wealth. Right. So Ecclesiastes 5 is remind us that just, you know, seeking after wealth in itself will lead to futility and dissatisfaction. So the passage points us away from earthly things, from earthly ambitions, and subsequently points us straight to Jesus. For Jesus alone is able to bring eternal satisfaction. So even again, there was Sister Foster. I know in the final days, the final days, right? She was able to rejoice. And as she said, I remember those words, I know my Redeemer liveth. Yeah, very triumphant sound. My other friend, all the way in the west of England, right, was beside himself with despair. What is to come next? Ecclesiastes chapter 6 focuses on the idea that no matter how successful a person is in life, they will die. Of course we know that this is a result of sin. The author here begins comparing the man who has much but never enjoys life to the one who is still born. He asks the question, who is it, would it be better for someone to be still born? Right? So in essence, saying, right, yeah, okay. Right? If you weren't born, if you die, you know, at, you know, you weren't born, and yet you lived and you acquired so much. When you actually compared what you've acquired to someone who never lived, right? In the greater scheme of things, in God's economy, unless this is grounded in him, unless it's rooted in him, you may as well didn't have anything to begin with. You may as well not even started to live. That is what the author, in some sense, is saying. So he's looking at it from the bigger picture and says, well, right, death swallows up everything in this world, everything in this life, and only what we do for Christ will last. Now, let me just clarify a little. I am not somehow dismissing everything that right, happens in this life in terms of what God has called us or commissioned us to do for his purpose in this glory. I'm not saying, oh, education and knowledge is all bad and evil. No, 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 don't misunderstand me. I'll be the first one that says I'll be contradictory and hypocrite because there we have TLG. Right, which we're due to start fairly soon. Thank God we've seen how it's progress rapidly. And what is TLG about? Seeking to assist and support those young people who are struggling in mainstream education. And let me dear say it once more. Never lose sight of the fact that universal education was started where? In the church. Sunday schools were first established for the reason of, yes, teaching people about God. But in the process of teaching them about God, teaching them, they found that many of the children couldn't read. So as a result of teaching them to read, to read the Bible, that's where 
right? Public education service started. And as a result, the universal education came about. Similar thing with the health service. Again, it wasn't a group of political activists or secular community activists. It was, again, Christians who said, you know, if you're going to minister to people, and as I gave the example of a friend, if they're unwell, if they're physically unwell, how can they right, focus on what God is actually sharing in your heart to share with them? We've got to do what we can to help them physically to become well so that they can focus more on things such as what God has to say through his word. And so when we say a national health service, if you look at many of the hospitals, one of the things you'll notice, they had what? Names of saints. St. Thomas, King, St. George, St. Bartholomew's, and so on. Why? It's not somebody um, in government suddenly says, you know what, we ought to name them after saints, etc. No, no, no. Quite often those hospitals trace their roots back to Christian volunteers. <laughs> right? And even the old idea of having a national service was again Christians who actually petitioned and lobbied. Parliament says, no, 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 you can't just leave it alone to charities and to right? good intended individuals. You need to have some political strategies. You need to actually invest in a national health service. So, you see what Jesus says, seek ye the kingdom of God and his righteousness and other things will be added to you. You see that much of what we now take for granted, those structures that are, we now take for granted and you know, are so vital to us as a modern industrial society, they started off in humble circles amongst Christians. So one is not for a moment saying, well, these things totally do not, absolutely do not matter. All that matter is just to go into some sort of um, monastic life or take up the life of an hermit and only focus on those things which are, in inverted commas, spiritual. From a biblical point of view, right, our spirituality is measured in terms of how we live within this world, how we use our God-given gifts to serve humanity. You cannot remove that from our spiritual value and our spiritual purpose. So I'm not for one moment saying, right, this is spiritual and this, and this is material and never the twain shall meet. No, no, no. Right? What the author is just saying, what, is, what are the priorities? What is your focus? What is count the most? Is it eternal things or is it temporal things? So the chapter in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, it says everyone eventually come to that moment of dying, death. But the only answer to death is the death of that man on the cross. Again, cries out, Ecclesiastes 6 cries out for Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 captures much of the heart of Jesus. And one very clear area where salvation is accurately portrayed is in verse 15 and verse 18. In this section, the author exhorts his readers to not be wicked, 
but also not to trust in themselves and their own wisdom for their salvation. Again, we, we, we know this so well in um, Ecclesia, right? Our righteousness is about life, filthy rags. We cannot save ourselves. Only by grace can we be saved. And grace can only be attained through the Lord Jesus Christ, no one else. That, again, is the answer to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, reminds us that Jesus, our judge, is just. No matter what happens in this life, in the end, the wicked will receive the due punishment for their sins. I was, again, you know, going back to my Muslim associates, I was talking about them. I says, you know what? Right? Eventually, in your religion and in my faith, yeah, we know that our sense of justice says that we have got to give an account. So if you, I says, if you live a life, right, that is only about satisfying your own ego, just gratifying yourself at others' expense, eventually you're going to have to give an account. And they said, yes, of course. So I said to them, well, look, look at those people who are wherever part of the world, committing these great evils in the name of Islam, right? What, I asked them, what do you think will happen to them? I said, well, <laughs> you know, God's judgment. I said, right, at least we can agree on that. Yeah, our sense of justice says right, that everyone has to be called to account for deeds done in the body. So the most telling point of Ecclesiastes is that none are righteous and everyone is deserving of death. And the only people who don't receive justice from God who is just are believers. We receive grace. Only grace is an antidote to judgment. Nothing else. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. Right? Only entrusted in Christ, it's reminded us. For Jesus alone paid our penalty for the sins we have committed against an holy God. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The author is realizing that there is a simply more to life than being wise, being wealthy. Because everything, as it says, again reminds us. Yeah? Your wealth, yeah? your knowledge, whatever you call it, eventually there's that finality. So it begs for more. And the only answer, the only one able to actually respond to that search, to that seeking, to that need is Jesus Christ. We see in the Gospels, as we read so many times, if you actually compare in what Ecclesiastes is asking, what Ecclesiastes is addressing, we see so many times in the Gospel, right? Jesus is saying, I came to give life and I give life more abundantly. See times when the disciples are trouble, right? And he would say, right, let not your heart be trouble. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. So often we see this. Jesus is answering Ecclesiastes indirectly, time and time again. And as I said to 
Pastor Ephraim, something. I says, oh, thank God we actually did a study in the book of John before we went into Ecclesiastes because it's almost like we've, we've got the answers before we saw the questions of life. We saw the answers of life yeah, before we addressed those very, very crucial questions in life. So it's just such a wonderful blessing to have studied John and followed by Ecclesiastes. But we see Jesus continuing the gospel, reassuring us, just, just trust in him, look to him. And even as Christians, sometimes, you know, we um, feel, oh, gosh, I, I can't go back to the Lord again. I've done so many terrible things. I have taken my focus off him. But no, he's always standing there waiting to be reconciled with you and me. And this is what Jesus was saying. Whatever are your concerns, whatever are your despair, whatever you're troubled by, whatever are your fears, believe in him. He said that I have overcome the world. That means he has overcome death. He has overcome those longings of the soul, those dissatisfactions. He has overcome those addictions. He has overcome all those barriers. He has overcome every aspect of things that trouble the human race. And all you need to do is to reach out to him. And this is the only recipe to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just move on quickly. Ecclesiastes 9. Is basically saying, right, the kingdoms of this world are going to fail. And this is what Ecclesiastes 10 is saying, right? We deserve justice, but Jesus true is righteous blood. The other way, never him. So in spite of the challenges that Ecclesiastes says, in spite of the futility of what life may seem like in this world, we are able to rise above it because of King Jesus. So we can approach that book with a triumphant spirit, with a joyful spirit, because on every page and every issue, every challenge, right, right, Jesus is there to make more than an adequate response. And after all, my final words is that never lose sight of the fact that Ecclesiastes was written, not for your sake, not for my sake, but it was written that it might signpost us to Christ. Amen? Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.